right. Hey, what's going on, veterinary anesthesia nerds? Thanks for joining in on another episode of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast, where we talk about nothing but anesthesia and pain management for your veterinary patients. I am joined by a VTS who is fantastic. And certainly if you're on the East Coast, you know this name because she is one of the greats as far as getting really good education out there, uh, especially if you are in New York. (laughs) We are talking to Michelle Albino, VTS in anesthesia. She is born and raised in New York, so um, maybe we'll have a a conversation about where we can get some really good bagels. Um, (laughs) There's there's a debate. They may be in New Jersey, Michelle. I'm not (gasps) sure. Um, But she has been an LVT since 2003. She got her VTS in 2012. She has worked um, exclusively in anesthesia and analgesia, and she currently is employed by the ASPCA in New York City. She lectures all over. She does regional meetings all the way up to big, fancy uh, international meetings like IVEX. And she's really passionate about really good anesthesia and pain management. So thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Tasha. And I mean, the bagel, I mean, that's a whole other podcast. Jersey, no, it's New York. New York or bust. I would assume this, but listen, there's some lists uh, on the interwebs. Say I, I mean, they must be written by people from New Jersey, right? So I would imagine that has so. to be what's happening. Yeah. Okay. All right. So Michelle, regional uh, bias. Let's talk. Yes. I mean, certainly. Listen to me. I'm sorry. Wherever you're listening, if you get a cheesesteak in Texas, I'm sorry. No, it's not a Philly cheesesteak. Okay. There's no way. Yeah. So you represent the cheesesteaks. I represent the bagels and the pizza. That's right. All right. So let's talk, Michelle. Um, I was really interested reading your bio that you did a lot of work with an anesthesiologist that a lot of people will know, Dr. William Muir. Um, and you worked with him on PVI and some fluid responsiveness. So talk to us about this because PVI comes up a lot um, on the veterinary anesthesia nerds. And it comes up a lot, especially because people tend to get a new monitor. Uh, maybe they got the new you know, multi-parameter monitor. And now all of a sudden, it's giving them uh, a number information on PVI, and they don't really know what to do with that. So can you walk us through what does PVI mean and when should we care about it? (laughs) Yeah, totally, Tasha. So um, there is a lot. We hear a lot about the PVI. Maybe if you've attended IVAX in the past five to 10 years, ACVIM, um, you know, these bigger conferences, or if you work at a specialty or teaching hospital, you may have heard in the past 10 years, um, talk about the PVI. So PVI stands for Plus Variability Index. Um, It's a non-invasive monitor that is um, put out by Massimo, who I love. And um, what it is, is it measures dynamic changes Um, in perfusion over respiratory cycles. In people, all the studies were done um, while they were on a mechanical ventilator. So that is one um, stipulation of of using PVI is that we can only really reliably use this monitor when patients are mechanically ventilated. And that is because we need to have positive pressure inside the thoracic cavity. But what this is, um, and the 
clinical utility of PVI on the human side um, was that basically traditional methods to guide fluid administration were not really as sensitive or specific as they needed to be at the time, about 10, 15 years ago, and that um, we wanted to develop some newer methods to improve fluid administration, right? Because we all know that the we all know the deleterious consequences of fluid excess at this point, and that those traditional fluid rates, surgical fluid rates of just ten to fifteen to even twenty ml per kilo per hour is too high for most patients, right? So this is all research that was done 10, 15, 20 years ago in human medicine. And that's where the PVI non-invasive monitor came out of. We wanted a non-invasive way to measure if a patient needed fluids or was just vasodilated and or needed heart rate support, right? Or needed um, systemic vascular resistance support. And so that's what this machine does. It is able to non-invasively measure if a patient could benefit from a fluid bolus. Okay, that makes sense. Now, you mentioned the fluid rates, which, again, sometimes I will go out into practices and I will still see people just putting a blanket of any healthy patient on 10 mils per kick per hour. Um, Walk us through kind of when you're looking at a patient in front of you, how do you decide what a decent starting surgical fluid rate should be? Yes, that's a great question. So the first thing that I'm going to ask most anesthetists when I'm helping troubleshoot anesthesia is what was this patient's subjective hydration going in and what was its PCV total solids? That's the basic, the like the actual minimal information I need to know how to direct our therapy from that point. Um, if you want to get even better out of shelter medicine back into specialty where I grew up, so to speak. I want to know this patient's CBC income and its albumin. Oh my God, what is its albumin? Um, What is its CVP? Things like that. Um, But at this point, I really just need to know its PCV total solid subjective hydration going in. And then I can determine, okay, this seems, this feels like a good starting rate for a patient. If you ain't got time for that, I know, right, like we are constantly needing to balance um, safe, practical anesthesia, right, with getting things done. Um Part of the work I did with Dr. Muir 10 years ago was to put out AHA standard fluid rates. And so if you don't have time to really calculate a patient's fluid rate, dogs start at 5 ml per kilo per hour and cats do 3 ml per kilo per hour. Easy as that. Yeah, that sounds good. I mean, that's what I'm used to. Um, Every once in a while, I might start a cat at three. But yeah, usually I'm in that, uh, you know, anywhere between three, five kind of camp. Talk to us for a minute about, um, you know, what your, your research showed as far as 
fluid responsiveness and then possibly, you know, bolusing intra-op. And don't worry, you guys, we're, we're working up to something here because Michelle has a pretty cool uh, hypotension algorithm. But let's just say as a bolus for a patient, how do you decide under anesthesia, I might give this patient a five mil per kg bolus or a 10 mil per kg bolus? I mean, heck, I've even seen some, you know, people come in and say, let's do a 20 mil per kg bolus. You know, what are some factors that you're looking at there when you decide that bolus volume? Yeah. So first of all, is it a cat or a dog? Um, Just because dogs can just handle fluid administration better than cats. I am more worried about fluid overload in a cat than I am a dog. Just just the basics of species basics, right? So I also want to know what I'm trying to achieve with that fluid bolus, I think. And when we talk more about the hypotension algorithm, you'll see how little I care about fluids. Um, But basically, I, you know, as a standard, if I'll start with a 10 ml per kilo bolus, if I think this patient is suffering from absolute hypovolemia and not just relative hypovolemia, because, and just for those of you who don't know, Absolute hypovolemia is when we have a patient who is in need of fluid therapy. They have been vomiting, having vomiting and diarrhea for two weeks and now presented with a foreign body. I need to undergo GA. Um, or they are, have been urinary obstructed for two or three days and haven't eaten or drank and they're vomiting, right? They are behind. They come in, they have tacky mucous membranes. They have a skin turgor, right? Like these patients need volume. They are suffering from dehydration. When you put them under anesthesia, they get vasodilated. And now they're suffering from both vasodilation from general anesthetics and from being behind volume-wise. But if a patient goes into surgery or procedures under GA and is euvolemic, if they are hypotensive, it is because either they don't have good heart rate support, they don't have good heart contractility, or they're just generally vasodilated from the inhalant, right? And those patients don't need fluid. They need vasoconstriction. So you have to really convince me intra-op that this patient who's hypotensive is going to benefit from dumping fluids into it and waiting for that to work. Yeah, exactly. And so glad you brought up the uh, the vasodilation because I think that, um, you know, vasodilation, decreased contractility, I think that sometimes we forget that these are big, major, potent side effects of inhalant anesthesia. And every animal reacts a little bit differently to that. And inhalant anesthesia is not benign. It has its own, you know, issues. That's why in, in anesthesia land, we're always talking about how can we reduce that? How can we, you know, reduce our MAC, et cetera? So, Michelle, if you're cool with it, um, you know, we usually do case-based kind of stuff here on the Anesthesia Nerds podcast. So I'd love to run down a potential case with you, something we see a lot out there in GP and how you would handle it, specifically walk us walking us through your hypotension algorithm. Absolutely. So today's case is going to be... Good, good. I'm glad you're on board. <laughs> For, forewarning, we already told Michelle that's what we were doing, you guys. So it's, I'm not like blasting her with, with the, with, you know, hijacking her completely. But you're rooting all the magic. The magic of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> the magic of podcasting. Uh, they know. I think they yeah. all know at home. There's no 
there's no magic here. We're yeah. just really excited about anesthesia because we're <laughs> dorks, but that's okay. That's fine. I've learned to accept it and I actually am proud of it. So here we go. Our case for today, eight-year-old Shih Tzu has come in for a dentistry. We're talking trash mouth, multiple extractions, okay? Um, but also has agreed to murmur. Now, the owner didn't want to work it up. Uh, we just want to get those teeth out. Now, we, let's say we pre-med it with a basic, you know, what's a basic protocol out in GP? Let's say Hydro Ace, right? That's oh, a nice one. Okay. And we have Dream it on inhaling anesthesia. <laughs> Listen, okay. it's out there, baby. Hydro know, Ace is still, okay. is still rocking out there. Okay. Listen, you know I would have said my you know I would have said my love Dexmed, but I do think, you know, with the grade two murmur, I probably wouldn't. And I do I do know some anesthesiologists who would throw Hydro Ace at this. I'm not gonna name their names. I'm just gonna say that. Let's I love do them it. No I'll anesthetize anyway. anything. So let's do it. That's right. So let's say this patient has got Hydro Ace, it was induced with propofol, it's on in um, isofluorine anesthesia, and we notice we have it on oscillometric blood pressure, um, not an art line here at this practice, but we notice that we are trending downward. Our maps are in the low 60s, and maybe now we have got a map of 58, and now we're talking about, okay, what can we do blood pressure-wise for this patient? Because my doctor still has probably eight more extractions to go. What's some advice that you yeah. have for us? So the way that I have this um, standard operating procedure or this SOP that I've created at the ASPCA Animal Hospital um, was to help expedite our cases um, and to help prepare for them preoperatively, right? So before we even anesthetize any animal, the doctor has to sign off on them on their procedure request and they they check a box that either says HA yes or HA no. And the HA stands for hypotension algorithm. And so if they want, so if they check HA yes, then they are basically prescribing to the nurse anesthetist that they can go through the routine steps of the hypotension algorithm. Um, and I'll go through that in a second. For this case, our doctors would have said HA no, um, because he is brachycephalic. He is a bit older. He has a, it sounds like a super gnarly mouth. So he's probably painful and then on multimodal um, analgesics. And um, he's got this heart murmur, right? And maybe we don't have chest rads or an echo. And all we know is that he's got a heart murmur. So plus minus cardiac disease. So this, they would have checked off HA no. And so in that case, they would have had to supply the nurse preoperatively with an alternative to the traditional algorithm. So for me, what's the first thing that we do in every case? Who is hypotensive? <laughs> the, what causes all of our negative inotropy, our negative chronotropy, our vasodilation, our volatile inhalants? So can we lower the gas on this dude? How high up on the ISO is he? We always try to challenge our patients, right? Can we lower the gas? Step one. If this is an HA yes or HA no, that is always going to be the first step. Second, 
is the heart rate normal for this patient? If this is a Shisu, um, they sometimes can run lower. There are Shisus on Michelle's breeds um, of Michelle's bradycardic breeds under anesthesia. That's one of the ones on the list. Um, so if this Shisu's heart rate is below 65, um, I'm going to, and he's hypotensive, and I've already lowered the gas as much as I can. I am going to suggest giving um, a half dose of an anticholinergic. Um, so a half dose of glycopyrrolate, which would be 0.005 mg per kg IV. And the reason why I would start at that lower rate is because I don't know what kind of heart disease this dog has. And maybe he has a disease where if I increase his heart rate too high, it could be arrhythmogenic. Um, it might be where um, he this he has a type of heart disease where he would not benefit from having a much higher heart rate. And that's usually more like cats with HCM. Um, but you never know. We do not know what kind of heart disease this dog has. So heart rate for me is next. It's super important. And it's a super easy way to fix hypotension when our patients are bradycardic, right? Next up, let's say either we gave glyco and, it, and his blood pressure didn't budge or his heart rate was normal. What if his heart rate is 120 and he's hypotensive? Then we turn to our adjunct analgesics um, and sedatives. Can I give? So in this dog, we already administered hydromorphone, azpromazine, um, which is a potent vasodilator, propofol, also a potent vasodilator, right? Um so what can we do to lower our ISO even more? Is this dog on any CRIs? Is he on a fentanyl CRI? Is he on a ketamine CRI, right? What can we do to provide PIVA or partial intravenous anesthesia to help keep the animal at a safe plane of anesthesia while lowering his gas, but still providing unconsciousness and amnesia, right? So that could be as simple as a bolus of fentanyl midazolam or putting them on a CRI. Super easy. Um, I also love throwing dextomatorin ketamine in the mix at this point. But maybe for this dog, again, we don't know what's going on with his heart. That's a little riskier. So, my, so maybe we'll use... Yeah, you know I love the ketamine. I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> Uh, it fixes everything under anesthesia. I, yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big fan. Like just, and I tell people like, not a, not a huge amount. I mean, I'm just usually doing like a half to one mg per keg. Like it's just a little kiss of ketamine. I like to call it just a little oh, yeah. cream in that Oreo cookie. I, I do like ketamine. <laughs> I love that you use doses at low. Yes, I, we've found that they, uh, it's effective. It's really nice. Um, and you know, like you said, with other things, CRIs local anesthetics, I am definitely of the camp of like, you know, let's get this inhalant down as low as we possibly can, especially in a case like this, especially if my doctor's looking at me like, yo, Tasha, I still got two hours worth of extractions to do. Yeah, we're not we going anywhere, right? Like we're going to be sitting here uncomfortable for a while. So let's get comfortable with being uncomfortable. What else can we do? Exactly. Now, Michelle, with this case in particular, I was going to say, let's keep going because let's say that they have done local blocks. They've added that little kiss of ketamine or something or a fentanyl bolus, and we are still hypotensive, even with our isoflurane at like 1%. 
where do we go from there with this this patient? Right. And sorry, I didn't even mention local blocks. For me, that is such a standard that it's not like for me, it's already there. But of course, locals insofar, whenever applicable, we are doing locals. But yeah, so now we're at the point where we've given maybe a bolus of fentanyl, started him on a CRI, given a dose of 0.2 mix per kigmodazolam IV. This dude is still flipping hypotensive. What do I do? If the patient was behind, was not uvolemic going in, at this point, I'm going to consider giving an IV fluid bolus of an isotonic solution, right? And only at this, we're at step four, and now I'm considering fluids. And this is a real turnaround from when I started doing anesthesia almost 20 years ago, when I mean just fluids from the bat. We induce them, they're hypotensive, let's give them some fluids. I mean, things have just changed so dramatically for the better. Um, but yeah, if this and, and also, we have to consider this dog has a heart murmur, too. So we want to be thinking about, could I cause fluid overload with this patient, even with one bolus? Um, so if this dog was euvolemic going in, I probably wouldn't even consider it an IV fluid bolus at this point because of his heart murmur and because I don't think this dog's suffering from absolute hypovolemia. Is he bleeding out into his mouth enough to cause blood loss? No, probably not, right? Um, so at this point, I go right to step five, which is our end step, which is our vasopressor of choice. And this also would have been decided upon preoperatively with the doctor. Do we want to use our go-to dopamine, which works on both alpha and beta receptors, depending on the dose? Or do we want to be a little bit more heart-friendly and use phenylephrine that only works on alpha receptors for vasoconstriction? Do we want to just try to see if a vasopress will work by giving an ephedrine bolus or even a phenylephrine bolus? Um, or do we want to pull out the big guns and go norepi and vasopressin? For this case, probably not. I think that either dopamine or phenylephrine would work fine in this case. And if you still have a ton of work to do, why mess around with even giving fluids? I mean, this dog is just going to need a vasopressor. He's just going to need vaso support here. So that's probably what this dog is going to end up needing. And then your anesthetist is going to end up feeling a lot more calmer and comfortable a lot sooner. Yeah. And I love the point you made about having that discussion before the patient is anesthetized, right? Because that's so important. I mean, if especially if I have a patient that has been hypotensive, um, I don't know about you guys listening in at home, but if I have this case, um, I am I'm just making that dopamine CRI up ready to go. So when it does get hypotensive, all I have to do is hit that button. Uh, certainly, we want to talk about this beforehand and talk with your clinician to see, okay, do you want me to start a dopamine CRI? Do you want me to start dobutamine? Should I just start with a one-off of like maybe ephedrine? But have that conversation because the last thing you want to do is have to step away from your case for a couple of minutes while you go find a syringe pump, get the dilution, label everything correctly, go to Pixis and get the drug out, right? So we want to make sure that we have that decided beforehand. Now, Michelle, not so much this case, but let's say like a, a different case. If you had a case come in that was um, one that is eligible for your hypotension algorithm or your, it was HA, yes, how does that differ? 
Yeah. So this is just a pretty straightforward algorithm um, that actually came of the PVI studies that I, um, for the data collection that I helped Dr. Muir with um, 10 years ago. And he put out a three series um, art article about how to individualize your fluid therapy plan. And that's what sort of got me thinking about the hypotension algorithm. And so I sort of, this is just my little spin on the algorithm that he put out. But our, if a doctor marks off HA yes for a patient, it means that they are approving the nurse to buy themselves without asking the doctor, because this has been pre-approved, that if the patient is hypotensive, they will first decrease the inhalant. They will second give a dose of an anticholinergic if the heart rate is low. They will third administer a dose of a bolus dose of either an opioid or a benzo, or at if the doctor approves, ketamine and dextomator. So they'll have to write one of those drugs in if they want one of those given, because I also just don't want the staff just kind of willy-nilly giving ketamine and dextomator. Um, if you, yeah, if you induce with, if you have an opioid on board, if you have a benzo on board, like who cares, right? We can give more of those. And so they don't have to get permission for fentanyl or metazolam, but yes, for um, for the bigger guns like ketamine and dexto. And then fourth, if they are behind in fluids, they give a 10 ml per kilo bolus of LRS. I don't even, so at this point, Muir would talk about colloidal support and say, you know, if there is blood loss, um, you know, consider PAC cells versus whole blood. And of course we do that. And that would be an HA no. If we think this patient's going to go and have problems bleeding, then we're going to have PAC cells on that list of the algorithm. Um, but for the HA, yes, we don't have PAC cells on there. We're not expecting blood loss. So they're behind in fluids. They'll get a 10 ml per kilo bolus. But honestly, at that point, my LVTs are just going to dopamine. They are just going to phenylephrine or they're just going to norepi. And more often than not, they're using dopamine because these cases that get checked off for HAS are the ASA 1 and 2s, more stable patients, where we don't anticipate um, a lot of problems or persistent hypotension. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, like I said, I for the majority of cases, I have a dopamine uh, syringe pump just loaded and ready to go. Glad you mentioned um, phenylephrine or ephedrine. That is actually like a sleeper like favorite of mine, which I don't <laughs> feel like I get pulled out very often. But every once in a while, I feel like, you know, I have that like pug under anesthesia and they just need a little boost. And I don't know if I really want to set, you know, turn on their dopamine CRI and I maybe only have 20 more minutes of anesthesia to go. And I might just be like, you know, just like a little ephedrine bolus get, get stimulated there. So I love that you mentioned that as well. Now for folks out there who maybe work in a clinic that they don't have access to a syringe pump, what are some options for them um, when it comes to vasopressors? Yeah. So you work in general practice. You're maybe um, have an orthopedic procedure on like, oh God, a Yorkie or a Maltese, or you're doing a cystotomy on some little flipping dog who's acting like a cat under anesthesia, not playing by the puppy rules. 
and you know you've got a while to go and this gas is as low as it is, you got your local box, you got your PIVA, what do you do? You don't have a syringe pump, but you know this patient needs a vasopressor. So that's when you can um, give boluses of vasopressors. Um, I recommend, it depends what you have in your practice, getting ephedrine or getting phenylephrine. Um, they're, God, knock on wood, not hard to come about <laughs> right now, but you never know anything could be added to those backorder allocation lists any anytime. Um, but those are some pretty simple um, other vasopressors that you can give as a bolus dose or um, because you really, I mean, I've never had a vasopressor on just a drip setup. I would be quite hesitant to do that just because they are not benign drugs. <laughs> they are potent vasoconstrictors and there could be significant effects if they accidentally, a large dose gets bolused in. So I honestly, I wouldn't recommend putting them on a drip. I would give them as a bolus. And yeah, I do have my staff have access, even though we are the ASPCA, it, it is to an extent shelter medicine. I really wanted my LVTs to get comfortable with not just dopamine. And so I threw phenylephrine and norepi in the mix because there are some foreign body cases that are confirmed septic. So why not just get our staff used to using norepi? And I've gotten them so used to phenylephrine as well that the second they've got a cat with a heart murmur that's like three out of six, we don't have an echo, they're using phenylephrine just in case that cat has HCM. And I love how comfortable they've become with choosing these different vasopressors at this point. Yeah, that's a great point. All right. So, you know, I'm going to ask because I know there's people wondering at home and they're thinking, wait a minute. If I know the cat has HCM, why would I want to use phenylephrine and why would I maybe not go towards dopamine? Yeah, great question. So when you're just starting out as an anesthetist, and oh my God, don't talk to criticalists. They don't want to hear anything about dopamine. They like, don't believe that dopamine should exist. But that's for awake patients. Oh, 100%. 100%. My criticalist, you know, when I was working at a place, my criticalist, I said, oh, yeah, I can help you with that. I just need to sit up this dopamine CRI. And he says to me, what is it, 1994? Ooh, and I was like, oh, okay. Sick hey, burn. Good burn, but also B. <laughs> Also, um, in anesthesia, we still are rocking the dopamine, okay? So calm down. I mean, I love dopamine. It's perfect. You can choose at what dose, what receptors it's working on. Why wouldn't you want a drug like that? But yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So we've got alpha receptors and beta receptors. And when we agonize or work on alpha receptors, we cause peripheral and central vasoconstriction. That's why dextomator as an alpha-2 agonist so potently vasoconstricts, right? It's the same principle. And the beta receptors, when you agonize a beta receptor, you're either working on heart rate or contractility. So it can increase heart rate or it increase the force of contraction. So why do I care about these receptors? Well, um, most generally under anesthesia, our patients are vasodilated, but they can have varying degrees of what we call negative chronotropy or inotropy. So that's decreased heart rate and decreased contractility. And there you would want some support in that um, area. So dopamine will work at both alpha and beta receptors 
when you started around seven and a half mics per kg per minute up to about 10 mics per kg per minute. When you start to dose it over that, you're working at only alpha receptors, which is for vasoconstriction. And sometimes when you start an animal on dopamine around those rates, you'll start to realize what they need. So if they're, it's working at seven, seven and a half, you're like, oh, maybe they really needed contractility. Like the ISO was really depressing the rate of contraction. But if it's not working until you've get it up to 10, 11, 12 mics per kilo per minute, you're like, okay, maybe it was just way too vasodilated and it just needed constriction. So phenylephrine only works on alpha receptors, no beta at all. We are only vasoconstricting. So if I have a cat with HCM or just a loud murmur, and it's like a Maine Coon or just some other adorable exotic breed, um, I don't want to even mess around with beta receptors. It can be arrhythmogenic to these patients. And so I just want to create vasoconstriction in these guys. Norepi is just the most potent of them all. It works on both, and we pull out norepi when we have got a real systemically ill animal. So you really only need to have norepi in your clinic if you're at a teaching hospital, at a specialty hospital. You're doing those real critical cases. Yeah, I totally agree, and 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 thank you for saying that because uh, you know then I was like, wait a minute. After he made that comment, I was like, am I? Should I be using the dopamine? Am I still cool? Uh, but then, yeah, we are cool. It just depends on where you are. You know, what do you have uh, at your disposal? You know, certainly we can see that a large teaching hospital is going to be different than a small rural clinic. Uh, but we're all in the interest of getting better and doing better as we learn better. So thank you so much. Um, that's all that we have. Um, last last question I have for you, and this is a hard-hitting one here If I was to visit New York City, where, in your opinion, am I going to get the best pizza? Oof. So, yeah, mind's blown. God, there, I mean, it just depends on who you ask. You're going to get such a different question. I have to represent my hood. I have to represent Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and say, go to Pauly G's. All right. You hear it here, folks. Pauly G's. (laughs) This is not the guy from Jersey Shore, is it? Oh, Lord, no, no. This is an old Italian dude who knows how to make pizza. 100%. Okay, great, great, great. <laughs> Not that going to the other, the Jersey Shore guy would be would be entertaining probably, but, you know. All right. Thank you so much, Michelle, um, for being a guest on the podcast. If people want to find you and get in touch with you, uh, are you going to be at any conferences coming up this year? I am going to. So I am not speaking at any major conferences this year, um, but I will be at IVAX in Colorado. Um, And I do some uh, independent teaching and training. You can um, find me online at www.vetanesthesiatraining.com. And you can find me at the ASPCA Animal Hospital, hanging out, troubleshooting anesthesia. Awesome. Thank you. And we will certainly put the the website in our show notes. So if you guys want to get in touch with Michelle, you can. Uh, Again, Michelle, thank you so much for making this information clear and succinct for people because I know, again, sometimes we just forget how should we really be treating these patients. And in anesthesia, we know that we always going to treat each patient as an individual. So 
while this SOP is wonderful, we always still want to treat each patient as an individual. But I do think that this is a really nice place for people to start. Um, and I think the fact that we're not just like throwing crazy amounts of fluids at our patients anymore is, you know, definitely a good thing Absolutely. for them. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for all that information. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Have a good day, friends. Thanks, Sasha. Bye. Bye.